much, uh, Natalie, and thanks, uh, Zoe. Uh, the second reading today uh, will provide a backdrop to uh, our passage from Malachi. I hope you'll see the connections. As I've advertised, we're going to be looking at the book Malachi over the next few weeks, the last book in the Old Testament, under the theme, The Lord Will Come. No doubt at all, Second Peter is talking about the Lord's going to come again. I hope you believe that. I hope you're enthusiastic about that. I hope that you uh, recognise there are over 500 references to the return of the Lord. So keep that before your minds this morning as we read through the Second Peter readings as well. I hope you're encouraged and strengthened and it fires your faith in expectation that Jesus Christ will return. Uh, let's pray, shall we, before we turn to this passage from, one, from Malachi chapter 1. Thank you, uh, Heavenly Father for that reminder that a man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. We gather today because we want to sit under your word. We want to be people who take seriously that challenge that life is not just about our physical needs but our spiritual needs need to be nurtured and they will be nurtured as we submit ourselves to the truth of your word, that revealed word, which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So I encourage us as we turn to your word this morning, give us receptive hearts and wills which are eager to put your word into practice in our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now I'm glad over the next few weeks that we're going to be looking at the book Malachi. If you're a bit unfamiliar with Malachi and you're thinking to yourself, hey we've already had one of those obscure Old Testament prophets, why do we have to have another one? Well, the simple answer is, hey, guys, we only did three weeks on Haggai. We hardly even got started. So we're going to keep going, and we're going to deal with another minor prophet. We're going to deal with Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Let me say there's a couple of good reasons why we should do that, not least because the refrain in this book is anticipating the coming. Four, written 400 years before Christ, but anticipating God's great decisive act in sending the Messiah. So if you get to chapter 3, you'll read passages like, The day of the Lord is coming. He will, I will send my messenger before me who will prepare the way. Reference to John the Baptist. So everything about this book is focusing our attention on what is yet to come. There's a lot of other things it's going to say to us because if you're expecting the Lord to return, like tomorrow, how would you live today? Bit of a challenge, isn't it, to think about that. If, uh, if that is true... 500 references to the Lord's return. Do we live our lives in, in the light of that expectation? So uh, Malachi is a great little book and it has much to say to us, not just to those people who lived around 440 BC, but to those people who live in the 21st century. Put it in context, written about the time that Nehemiah returned. Remember we've been looking at Haggai. Haggai comes to Jerusalem around 520 BC. Fast forward a little bit, Nehemiah's come back to repair the walls of the city, the cupbearer of the king, and uh, the, the temple apparently in its very inferior form has been completed. And uh, so now we've got Nehemiah on, on, on hand and we've got uh, our friend Malachi who is an exact contemporary of Nehemiah. Now the book Malachi is an interesting little book. It's a strange little book in some ways even the way we pronounce the title is a bit difficult. Some people want to say Malachi. Malachi, you know, that's got a ring about it, doesn't it? Other people say, oh, no, 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 Malachi. Let's get this right, Malachi. Of course, both might be wrong in the end, 
for the, uh, the, the title to the book simply means, Malachi means, messenger of, or my message. So it may just be a title. Might not actually refer to someone, though there's no question at all that someone is God's spokesman bringing this word to his people. There is someone who is saying, thus says the Lord, and calling for our attention to take that revelation seriously. As I thought about this little book, I thought about the responsibility of those who are called to be spokespeople for the Lord, prophets, preachers, and the tremendous responsibility of standing up and declaring God's word faithfully. How easy it is to compromise, to play down, to soften the thrust of God's word. There are a lot of hard things in this book, a lot of challenging things in this book. I hope you'll bear with me, but we need to be absolutely honest before God and not dilute the message. Know what Paul says in his final words to the Ephesian elders, I've not shrunk from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Didn't take the easy route, I've not shrunk from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So this is a very interesting book and I believe it will have much to say this morning. You will interpret that under God's spirit in the right way, I'm sure. So why might this book be relevant to us today and how might Malachi's message uh, be God's message to us this morning? If you delve into the book, you'll discover that Malachi describes, and these are the four words I want you to think on, the complacency, hypocrisy, disillusionment and indifference of God's people after the temple had been completed. Temple completed about 516 BC, but a sort of sickness, a lethargy, a disillusionment had, had descended upon the people like a, a, a cloud and they're hardly rejoicing in the Lord. This is hardly a picture of what uh, ought to be typify the great gathering of God's people, anything but that. Now you might have imagined that after the painful lessons of the exile, 70 years in a foreign land as a consequence of their rebellion against God, they would have changed. They would have learnt the lesson. You might think that they would make the same mistakes all over again. But human nature being what is, is very fickle. No matter how plausible our cries, we'll not make this mistake again. In reality, we slip back into the same mistakes and the same disregard for God and the same uh, sense of ignoring his righteous standards. Complacency, hypocrisy, compromise, lethargy or whatever. The disease which has overtaken the people we might simply call spiritual apathy. Uh, over the next few weeks we're going to look at various aspects of our own lives in the light of this book and we're going to do it under the, the, the three T words because each of these will, be, will come up in the course of the book. We call that time, talents and treasure. You with me? Bit of a challenge here. Uh, is Am I a, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ in each of these areas? Time, talents, treasure. It'd be a wild, wild ride, my friends. Buckle up, don't be faint-hearted. But who wants to be content with mediocrity or apathy? Now, some of you know the story from Greek mythology which concerned the lotus eaters. Some of you will know the story from typical Greek mythology. It said that when Ulysses was returning... From one of his campaigns, his ship was blown off course through adverse weather and uh, he was driven onto an island near the north coast of Africa. The people of the island spent their time doing nothing else but devouring the fruit of the lotus plant. 
It was said that the fruit induced a drug-like stupor which made you oblivious to the serious issues surrounding you. You just wanted to sort of sleep it off. It's said that uh, Ulysses' men were persuaded to eat the fruit and a drowsiness overtook them and they lost all interest in returning to their homeland. The story is captured in Alfred Lord uh, Tennyson's famous uh, poem, The Lotus Eaters, if you want to go and uh, research that. Of course, the very idea reminds us of the ever-present danger of apathy, the danger of uh, eating at the, the nectar that this, this world has to offer and thereby uh, minimising, eroding, diluting our commitment to Christ and his calling to be his messengers in the world. Instead of being really clear about what we're on about, where we're heading, as Paul puts it in the Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, we lose our way, we lose perspective, lose our focus, and we can in fact be enticed away to the things of this world. How many people who profess Christ at some stage in their lives find themselves enticed away later in life and their love for Christ grows cold? Maybe things didn't work out for them like they had hoped. And maybe they feel that God has let them down. How many people become disillusioned when the Christian church doesn't give them what they're looking for or someone hurts them in the church and uh, feel disappointed, dis, dis, uh, uh, discouraged with God? They begin to miss church. Just a day here, a day there. Stop reading their Bibles on a regular basis, no longer take time together with others to support and encourage each other in Bible study and in no time at all they find themselves turning to the attractive things of the world to fill the void. The nectar of the lotus plant becomes the sweetener in their lives and they lose all thought of the things of God, lose all thought and all interest in the things of eternity. That's why it's great for us to read Second Peter in these coming weeks. It's such a clear focus on the future and eternity. Now it's been said that the book of Malachi puts before us three arresting commands. Stop, look and listen. They're pretty easy to remember, a bit like the traffic lights. Stop, look, listen. Indeed, uh, in the opening verses we have the command, stop. Look at verses 1 to 5. And uh, essentially what the writer is saying is, stop what you're doing. Do a stock take. Uh, the opening words are, God says to his people, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Where's the evidence of that? This beautiful expression, I have loved you, we, let, we need to allow that to, to weigh on us for a moment, actually reflect on the wonder of that statement. If you want to read a wonderful book about God's love, go and read the prophet Hosea. The unbelievable, patient, forgiving love of God uh, spelled out in the 11 chapters of the, the prophecy of Hosea. God's extraordinary, patient, loving kindness. Uh, this is a, a beautiful expression and of course we ought to ponder it. It is of course indicative of God's unfailing love, his covenant love, for his people which never wavers 
And as we read about the promises of God, we need, to, we need to refresh our minds with that great truth of God's amazing, unconditional love for us. Now, it's clear that the people were questioning that. How have you loved us, they say. Even though the people say that they are God's people and believe that they are right with God, something is seriously wrong in their lives. If you fast forward to the second part of our reading, beginning at verse 6, you will see that the people are bringing defective sacrifices and think that God doesn't care, that he's not particularly concerned about it. More than that, that the people frown and turn up their noses at God, saying, in effect, serving God is such a burden, so much trouble. It's pretty clear that the rod has set in among the people and they seemed oblivious to this dis-ease in their midst. So the first thing this passage focuses our attention on, verses 1 to 5, is the love of God for his people. How much we need to reflect on that. Um, get a decent book which really speaks about, I think uh, there's, some, there's a couple of wonderful books available, just focus on the truth of the love of God, how good it is to saturate ourselves in that truth. You see, when we doubt God loves us and behave in such a way that we repudiate this great truth that God is love, that's one of the shortest statements in the Bible, God is love, when we repudiate that, we build a wall between ourselves and God and wonder then why God doesn't seem very close. To use uh, Dr Paul White's image, there is this impenetrable wall of sin which we can't go through, can't go over, but we've built the wall. We are the problem. have created this wall of separation between us and God. Now, the answer to that, the, the uh, solution to that is obviously heartfelt repentance. Tragically, we don't hear a great deal about repentance in the church today, but it is, in a sense, the central theme of the Bible. The early Christian preachers had this message at the, at the core of their preaching, repent and believe the good news, it wasn't just believe the good news, it was repent and believe the good news. Jesus began his public ministry in Mark 1, 13 and 14 with the words, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is drawn near to you, repent and believe the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches to the crowds in the temple area and says, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2, 38. Following the healing of the blind man at the beautiful gate, the amazing crowds gather round and he said, Peter says, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. And then, he adds, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come. The word repentance conveys the idea that you must stop what you are doing and change direction recognising that the way you are living is offensive to God and you need to change a total reorientation of heart and mind much more than just being sorry much more than just uh, regretting what's happened an absolute determination to change direction and to change our whole attitude in heart and mind it's said in the French Foreign Legion they had a word for about turn. It's very close to our, this word we have here, this word metanoia in our New Testament, the word for repentance. Stop what you're doing. Change direction. 
Recognise that your lifestyle, your behaviour is an affront to a holy God. You need to change. Now there's little doubt this had very particular application to what was happening in the the 5th century BC. This uh, casual attitude towards God, this indifference towards him, treating him with disrespect. There's no honour here, no awesome God that we sang about when we were singing Shine Jesus Sign, very little of that at all. A contemptible attitude. Now in verse 2 you might have been confused because a dialogue between God and his people goes on. And again uh, we read, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now don't get stuck on the last phrase. In Semitic languages they have extreme, what they call a Semitic extremism. If you love one person, you don't love the other person less. You have to hate them. There's, only, there's no middle ground. Love or hatred, that's a Semitic way of expressing things. We might express them slightly differently, but don't get uh, distracted by that. The point is, was not Esau Jacob's father, but I have loved Jacob. He's the one who was the object of my devotion, my loving kindness, my election. And they, of course, are the descendants of Jacob. Um, as I say, don't be, don't be confused by the Semitic extremism. If the Israelites doubted God's love for them, for they were the descendants of Jacob, then they should be, contrast that with what's happened to their cousins, the Edomites, who were the descendants of Esau. They lived over the border of the Jordan on the other side, the eastern side of the country. Have a look what's happening to them. If you doubt that God loves you, what about the twin brother and his descendants? Maybe they were looking over the border to the Eastern Territory occupied by the Edomites and were resentful that they were doing it better than themselves. You know how the saga goes. Why is life so difficult for me when those who don't even acknowledge God seem to have it so easy? This is, of course, a constant theme in the Bible. Psalm 37 raises it in this way. Don't fret yourself because of evildoers. Don't be envious of them. They'll soon be cut down like the grass. Or that brilliant psalm, Psalm 73, which goes on and on about the wicked triumphing and getting their own way and the righteous being trampled under their feet. And the writer of the psalmist says, I couldn't even understand this, didn't make any sense at all, until I entered the sanctuary of God. In other words, until I drew near to God and understood things from his perspective, then I understood things And then we have that lovely expression, surely you place them on slippery ground. Don't envy the wicked. Don't be distracted by their apparent easy lot that they have. Uh, This will always be a challenge for Christian people, but do not be discouraged. What a dangerous thing it is to question God's love for us. What a terrible thing when we demand proof of God's love. This seems to be what was happening in the days following the return from exile when the golden age they were looking for didn't materialise. The temple was a mere, a poor reflection of the first temple and uh, understandably in some respects they were uh, discouraged. But if you want proof, Malachi announces, proof of God's love, it's found in the favour he has shown to Jacob, your ancestor, rather than in his twin brother, Esau. Don't think that the grass on the other side of the fence is greener. It's not. That's a myth. 
I've got a book on my bookshelves which uh, addresses this issue, especially people who want to be unfaithful to their marriage covenant. Don't ever believe the lie that the grass on the other side of the fence is greener. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Well, this is the, they were buying into this lie that maybe things were easier for Edom, their neighbours. What a terrible thing it is to start doubting God's love. The Edomites did not have some utopia, if that's what the Israelites were thinking. If you look closely at verses 3b through to 5, you'll see a reference to some recent calamity that actually has occurred, which uh, ended up driving the Edomites from their territory. Uh, it might have been the, uh, the uh, attacks at the hands of the Nabataean Arabs, where we can trace that in history, and uh, their old territory, they were driven out of it, ended up in the southern part of Judea, later called Idumea. It's referred to in the Gospels, Idumea. So in case you're thinking that the guy next door who ignores God gets off scot-free, then think again. Edom has suffered utter and final desolation and in future her waste places will be a witness to her wickedness and to the Lord's judgment upon her. Do you see what verse 3 is saying? I have turned his mountains, Edom's mountains, like Mount Seir, east of the Jordan, into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. And even if arrogant Edom can say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, apparently they said that, the word of God, the Almighty, is they may build it, but I will demolish. They'll be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Don't think that your lot is so terrible that other people are so much better off than you, especially those who have no time for God. One of the interesting things about uh, this book, by the way, is the number of times the expression, the Lord Almighty, occurs. It occurs over 20 times in this book, that title. That should be a great challenge to us. This is actually challenging our doctrine of God. What is our view of God? Do we have a right, proper understanding of the greatness, the wonder, the power, and the uh, omnipotence of God. You see, the point here about at the Edomites is that uh, when future generations see the desolation on Edom, they'll draw the conclusion that Edom must have been desperately wicked to merit such severe punishment. But what of Israel? At this time, complaining that they were had, heard done by. How much more for those of us who, of course, live on the, the better side of Calvary? Do we complain do we doubt God's love? Do we question his goodness and his grace? You see, is this not the cross of Christ, the most supreme evidence of God's amazing love in that extraordinary sacrifice made once for all for us? Don't ever doubt the love of God, how much we need to think deeply about the love of God for us. But the second part of this passage is about the people, the people who dishonour God by their behaviour, verses 6 through to 10. Verse 6 begins with those haunting words, a son honours his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, says God, where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? In the nation of Israel, indeed among most uh, ancient Near Eastern people, the father was deeply respected, the father figure and uh, the attitude towards one's father, one's father was stressed above all others. To think of God, therefore, as father 
should result in honouring his authority and his majesty. One of the key aspects of life where this disrespect showed itself is mentioned in verses 6 and 7. God says, uh, Is it you, O priests, who show contempt for my name? The very people who were the leaders of the nation who should have set the example? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name? Note how again this dialogue continues. There are a whole series of dialogues, seven dialogues in all in this book. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for you, for your name? And the answer comes back, you place defiled food on my altar. And if you skip down to verse 8, this is made quite explicit when we read, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And as if to rub salt into the wound, the word of the Lord goes on, try offering that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. There's that expression again. If you wouldn't dare offer blemished animals to the civic ruler, how would you ever dare so to do so before the Lord God Almighty? You know, of course, according to Jewish law, every sacrificial victim was to be unblemished, a perfect example. So real cost was involved in the offering. See Deuteronomy 15.21. And if it's inconceivable that God would accept such... Inconceivable that God would accept such offerings, what about his willingness to accept the offerer who brings the offering? Isn't the same point clear? you come with that attitude do you think God is pleased with your approach to him verse 10 expresses this graphically oh that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar I'm not pleased with you says the Lord Almighty I will not accept an offering from your hands the information is if your worship is that is that hollow and that meaningless you better shut the whole show down That would be much more honouring to God. Shut the doors of the church. Don't go through some facade, some display, which which you're just fooling yourself and not fooling God. Better to shut the doors and close the whole show down. This is a strong word, isn't it? Really strong word about how, how our approach as we gather as God's people, as we come to meet with the living God, the thoughts on our hearts, our whole approach... This is a, uh, a book which is a call to the people of God in every generation, not just the 5th century BC, but every society. A call to repentance and a life of true holiness. It's also a call, as we shall see in chapter 4, that the day of the Lord is coming and with it comes judgment on unrepented sin. This is a serious challenge. So we come back to my opening remarks, if We knew the Lord were coming tomorrow. How would we live in the present today? You see, this is a reminder of us to examine every area of our lives, to expose it to the all-seeching eye of God and ask if our behaviour is worthy of those who bear the name of Jesus Christ in the world. So God says to us this morning, stop. Take a look at yourself, at every area of your life, even the innermost secrets of your heart, and ask, is this bringing honour and praise to God? Or is it possible that I am cheating God in the way I use my time, talents and treasure? One of the most searching verses in the Bible occurs at the close of Hebrews 4. 
in the New Testament. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him for whom we must give account. Everything laid bare before his eyes. What a searching, challenging word that is. I've said the word, uh, the expression, the Lord Almighty occurs 20 times here. Do we consider the sovereign Lord Almighty as the one in whose name we gather as we come here Sunday by Sunday? One of the lovely contemporary songs, it's not, uh, not quite so modern, but one of the lovely contemporary songs is that uh, song by Bob Kaufman, Kauflin, called O Great God in Highest Heaven. Do you know the song? O great God in highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. And it goes on, I was blinded by my sin, had no ear to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Absolutely a beautiful contemporary song which talks about the greatness of God, our great God in highest heaven. Let me close with a, a story which some of you might know of which focuses on that wonderful uh, hymn, How Great Thou Art. I don't know if you know the background to the hymn. The hymn apparently was written by a Swedish author, Carl Boberg, who'd been a, a, a missionary to the uh, villages in the Carpathian Mountains, which is modern-day uh, Czech Republic, uh, translated into English by Stuart Hind, originally written in Swedish. Apparently in his missionary endeavours as he moved about these villages, he found God had been already at work and was utterly surprised he learned that 19 years earlier, by divine providence, a Russian soldier had left behind a Bible. And one woman, who was illiterate when she started, taught herself to read and began to read the message of the Bible. It said that she read the Bible, understood the nature of God's love and started to share it with her friends in the village and here he is, 19 years later, Carl Boberg arrives in these villages and he writes this, that uh, hearts in the village melted by the love of God. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Hearts in the village melted by the love of God. Is it any wonder that that line in Boberg's hymn goes, and when I think that God his son not sparing, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin and when I think that God his son not sparing sent him to die my friends that is the love of God which we gather to celebrate again this morning uh, this passage talks both about the amazing love of God but also the challenge to us to be worthy to bear his name in the world may God give us grace to heed this wonderful message from this book and to put it into practice in our lives.